Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Glenn Stallsmith. Glenn is a pastor who serves two United Methodist churches in rural North Carolina. He's also a Ph.D. student at Duke Divinity School. For 12 years, he lived in the Philippines, working as an ethnomusicologist with Wycliffe Bible Translators. He's also the reviews editor of Global Forum on Arts and Christian Faith. I give you Glenn Stallsman. Glenn, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. Thank you, Scott. It's good to be here. Good to see you. As always, we've got interesting text. Jeremiah 4, verses 11 through 12 and 22 through 28. This is not a, a sort of pick-me-up. I'm guessing Joel Osteen doesn't regularly preach on this text. Here we got a hot wind coming out of the bare heights in the desert toward God's poor people, not to winnow or cleanse. <laughs> a wind too strong for that. Now, now it is I who speak judgment against them. I like that. Not to winnow or cleanse. Don't mistake this for anything redemptive. We're just going to clean the slate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if September 11th has become a liturgical day yet. Like, do people like do le- September 11th Sundays? Um, but if they do, if, if there are churches where that were recognizing that as important, this might be an appropriate text, and it falls. falls yeah, close to the yeah, right day. yeah. There is a kind of uh, fitting sort of. Uh, I mean, this is a real passage of judgment and here we have you know the clear sense that it's it's not mitigated right i mean it's pretty uh it, it's pretty unvarnished yeah it i the way i read this is it's the and I, and I didn't come up with this on my own but this is the undoing of the genesis account of god's creation yeah very very i, I mean it seems as though jeremiah is very specifically doing that right right I looked like especially verse twenty three. I looked on the earth, and lo, it was waste and void. Talking about you know imitating the formless, the, the language of form, formless void uh, that you get in in Genesis one. So, but what I like is on verse thirteen, which technically is cut out of the of the lectionary readings, but it's the first word in verse thirteen. Um, it says, "Look," and you know to to parallel with the work that God does in creation, where God saw what God created, and it was good. I think the question you can ask in your sermon, if you're preaching from this, is what does God want the people to see, or what are the people not seeing? Um, why is creation being undone? What What are the people over? Yeah, and it's interesting, too, that after that uh, waste and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. Like, that's just such an interesting image that, like, you— you know, it, and there was light. You know, there's no light. Like it, it, the 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 void and the, and the chaos. Yeah, it makes and yeah. Wonder, what are we like, seeing? Yeah, who who's that on? Like, did God shut off the light in heaven, um, or or is the blindness on on the part of human beings? Like they have just trained themselves through their sin, which they are skilled at. Right? Isn't that what verse twenty two says? They are skilled at doing evil. They don't know how to do good. I mean. If the light from heaven seems like it's shut off, it would seem to me that that's a problem of perception, 
not that yeah, God and it's cut interesting. Off the generation. It's interesting that you say that because I wasn't thinking this when I first read it, but this is an interesting point you make. Like, if we're thinking on the Genesis parallel, the eating from the tree of good and evil, now of good and evil, right? Like, and this idea that we can't let them eat from the tree of life because they'll be stuck in this kind of reprobate, in this, you know, unintended state if we let them do that. Here, it seems that they're like, they're, again, they're, it seems like they've uh, gone beyond Adam and Eve, like it, it, beyond this naivete and sort of eating from the cookie jar to becoming skilled uh, mm-hmm. in evil doing. Like they're beyond, they're sort of like partners with the serpent, not victims. And completely unable to see the goodness that God has intended. Like It's almost like saying, we see what we know and we know what we do. And, and if we've become skilled at doing what's wrong and we can't see the goodness that God yeah, it's interesting too because I wonder how much like is is this sense of the judgment. You know, there's this sense that sin is its own punishment, and I wonder how much that when we're le- when sin is left kind of unbridled, it undoes creation. Yep. Yeah, and and you can play with the last two verses there, which you know, verse twenty seven says, in spite of all this, God says, "I will not make a full." So even though it seems like creation is being undone and, and what was good is being dismantled into a void, God's not willing to put a period at the end of that and say, this is it. But in the very next verse also says, I've not relented. Um, <laughs> so uh, issues about providence and theodicy are all swirling around in there. What, you know, it, it's clear what God's intentions are for, throughout the witness of scripture, that God's intentions are for um, God's people to prosper in the land and enjoy creation, yet how God works towards that end um, is sometimes a little bit muddy and unclear for us. And so you get, even in back-to-back verses, a God who hasn't relented and yet will not will not let that be the last word. Yeah, and you think it's interesting, ultimately, that this sort of shaking of the earth and the sky darkening and all the, the, the no light, I mean, you think of no light in midday, you think of the cross. I mean, here, ultimately, the creator is unmade, right? So that we can be remade. I mean, ultimately, this judgment, this unrelenting judgment comes on God, the judge, you know, judged in our place. So it's it's, it's interesting that that's, that's sort of the, you know, the, this is like a, a picture of the judgment that God bears for the people. Yeah, it'd be great to use the cross as a as a interpretive key here. Yeah, you think yeah. it's interesting because you think you think of like uh, it's interesting because I think of like what Tolkien does with Gandalf and Aragon and Frodo in in Lord of the Rings. There's not like you know you have like like Aragorn is the king figure, Gandalf is like the prophet, but Frodo's the priest, and only the priest. It's a lonely vocation because he's he he has to take the ring back to the source of evil alone. And, you know, this is neither the prophet nor the king are equipped to do it. Right. And so this priestly role of Christ, you know, the, the, the one who is both priest and victim, it's sort of the only one that can stand in the whirlwind, you know, in the, in the reaping of, of, uh, in in the thing that not just unmakes, but remakes creation. Yeah. I think you, I mean, if you've got a a congregation who's tuned into, to middle earth and knows those, (laughs) I think you could, uh, I, I, I mean, the devastation at Mordor and so forth, I think that ties in really well to the imagery here in If your Jeremiah. geeks are there, if play If someone the can do that, send, they should let us know. Tweet that out or something. Yeah, tell us that you did that. We want to hear that sermon. 
On to 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 17. Here we have Paul saying, I'm grateful to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who strengthened me. He judged me faithful, even though he was a blasphemer. Uh, and he talks about his, you know, acting ignorantly and unbelief. And yet that wasn't, you know, what his story was. That wasn't the final word of his story. And then he has this great verse, you know, this saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So it seems that, you know, here, here we have uh, Paul opening this letter saying that uh, it's, it's like, I think of that, remember the hair club from, do you ever see the hair club for men commercials? And the guy said, I'm not just... I'm not just the president of Hair Club for Men. I'm also a client. And he sees the picture of when he was bald. I like that's yeah. like I, I'm in, I'm in the Hair Club for Sinners. I'm not just I'm not just the president of this. I'm also a client. I'm a user. Yeah, yeah. It's this is Paul's big humble brag here, isn't it? It's yeah, like a humble brag. It's like a kind of resume that he's laying out here. Like this is why, um, this is why you know I have the you know this is why you should listen to me. This is why this letter has import because I. And and he completely flips it upside down. Instead of all his leadership credentials and all the great things that he's done and accomplished for Jesus, it's, I was the worst of them. This is not Paul as our favorite megachurch pastor with great hair and perfect teeth. Um, And it reminds us that this is the struggle Paul had throughout his ministry, especially, I mean, the books of, or the letters to the Corinthians kind of clue us into um, the fact that he really had to struggle for, for the authority that he had among these churches and, and people didn't like the fact that he, you know, didn't speak well, apparently there's hints of that, um, that he seemed to have some kind of physical problem, um, that put people off. Um, he was always getting himself locked up in prison. I mean, that's not, that's not great evidence of name it and claim it, um, work of, of Jesus in your life. <laughs> um, so it's interesting that he would take what seems to be just like the absolute, the stuff that you would, you know, you'd put in, in, in the trash bin that you would never mention at a dinner party. And he lays it out here in this epistle, like, this is, you know, this is what you're getting. Um, and this is what qualifies me to talk about the gospel of grace. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's, it's, it's interesting, right? Because that, I think that, that we think that this sort of, um, temptation to kind of prosperity theology and, and it's something that is sort of, uh, you know, a product of capitalism or or something like that. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's it seems that from the from the earliest times, this was still a temptation. Like that yeah. in the first generation of Christian, that people were trying to sort of fit the gospel into a kind of prosperity, power, flashy kind of show religion. Uh, yeah, and it's it it seems that like that's not you know we're not unique in that, right? Like this yeah. is from the beginning. This is the temptation. It's, it seems important that Jesus keeps bringing up that the first shall be last and the last shall be first <laughs> for a reason. Um, it, it's you know, it's I interesting, think- too. I was just thinking, too, like Marva Dawn argues in her book uh, uh, on we- powers and tabernacling. I think it's um, uh, powers, weakness, and the tabernacle- tabernacling of God. She says that 2 Corinthians 12, 9, another great Pauline letter, should be translated, My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. For your, you know, for Paul's power is brought to its end in weakness. Um, it, 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 instead of like God's strength is made perfect in weakness, it's your power. She said, you could translate it, your power, Paul's power, is brought to an end in weakness, and God's power begins. It's a very interesting kind of take on the text, and and certainly, it seems that Paul has 
lived this constantly such that it becomes uh, it's sort of like a uh you know shine a lantern on on your weakness here <laughs> he's, yeah. to, he's like actually it looks like a liability but i'm realize i'm realizing in the kingdom it's a calling card yeah that, that this is the amazing power that that christ has the ability to reconcile all things means that even these even these things become his strength i you you've probably seen i think most of the world has seen that clip from the interview between Stephen Colbert and Anderson Cooper um which one i'm not i'm not was, sure if i have seen it okay um i'm not on social media enough so i figure if i've seen it that everybody else has um <laughs> <laughs> but uh I, I think it aired just a few weeks ago, but Anderson Cooper recently lost his mother and um, S- Stephen Colbert lost his dad. And yeah. Who he was like, he like idolized his dad. I mean, in, in many ways, siblings. like I've heard him talk about it. Yeah. And, and a couple of Yeah. And he talked about his dad as this Christian humanist and, and he, he wanted to be like his dad in that regard. Like his dad was reading like Jacques Maritain and all stuff. Like he looked at his dad as this role model of like this wonderful Roman Catholic, you know, Christian human. Yeah, and uh, Stephen was a young man when when his dad died in a tr- tragic plane a- accident, and um, so th- they're having this interview, Anderson Cooper and Stephen Colbert, and it and a- Anderson Cooper just recently lost his mother. It's still very raw, and they're they're talking about that and talking about loss and talking about grieving, and and Colbert just says this beautiful thing about life being a gift. And that even the sufferings in life are a gift. And, you know, it had them, I don't know if Colbert broke, broke out in tears, but Cooper is obviously choked up and, and I was too watching it. Just that even life's sufferings come as, as gift because life is a gift. And it just seems like when, when Christ is Lord, that even even these things that Paul lays forth, blaspheming, persecution, violence, even that can be taken up into Christ's reconciling work and, and become God's strength. That even that, because of Christ, can be a gift. Yeah, I told this story in a sermon uh, recently. And what you said just made me think of this. Like, I, this years ago, I was at a low point in my life. I was totally depressed. I was sitting on the cat, laying on the couch. Like, it was a dark time in life. And a wayward time, a dark time. And I remember like I had like basic cable and like there was only like 10 channels and like two of them, three of them were religious. Like, so I, I, John Hagee comes on pastor John, and he says this quote, he's talking about the storm, you know, the, the disciples in the, in the boat with Jesus in the storm. And he said, going through the storm of suffering, uh, doesn't make you, spe- you that just is basically the storm of suffering makes you, part of the fellowship of humanity, but how you go through the storm will determine your destiny. And I watched the sermon and I thought, I didn't like this guy's theology generally. And I'm not a John Hagee fan generally. And I actually called his ministry line and I said, look, I've been critical of him, but I want you to say like some one of his critics was very blessed by his ministry today. And the woman prayed with me and said she'd commit to praying for me for 50 days, uh, which I'm sure I guess they did. And I thought, wow, like, uh, truth is where you find it. Right. But I mean, but that, that idea that like, the suffering, suffering will come no matter what. Like it, it's, it's how you go through it, right? That the, the gospel is not the answer to the problem of evil, like or philosophically, but it is the promise that uh, evil, it, it's it, it that you can get through it uh, with God's grace. It hasn't come to a full end. Yeah. I just said, oh.
On to the gospel, Luke 15. It's so interesting, right? Because the lectionary breaks this up and it, it clearly, I think, like it's a unit, right? Like 15, 1 through 10, it goes with the prodigal son. Uh, Jesus is with tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees and scribes are grumbling. You know, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then he tells them a parable about lost, a lost sheep and a lost coin. And it's a very interesting text because I, I like. I think in, immediately, right? I think it's pretty easy to judge. To like, I think so much of the Bible, right, is like how you, who you identify with in the story, right? Like when you're reading David and Goliath, right? We're not supposed to identify with David. We're supposed to identify with the oppressed Israelites who are lost and need a redeemer, right? <laughs> and, and 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 you know, and God acts in this counterintuitive way, right, to deliver the people. And I, I think here it's like so tempting to to identify like to cheer on Jesus when really probably we should think like when are we like the Pharisees and the scribes the grumblers like you know because you know, I think then the the message probably cuts to our hearts more when we think like when we're because we're all judgmental right like we're all there's no holier better than there's no holiness better than holier than now uh, yeah we're probably more you know, likely the the, the older brother in the prodigal son story that's to follow, you know, the one who stayed. Yeah. Him. Yeah. And yeah. wondering, why did you leave? Why did you run out after that guy? Um, I've always been here. Um, yeah. It's I interesting was, too. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, I like, I always like in my sermon when I can bring out some great exegetical point, like now we always read this in such and such a way, but you probably haven't thought that the real meaning for the first century would be this and you know, give some great wisdom about how to actually read. That's hard to do with this. I mean, this is a very straightforward reading that I think has a pretty plain sense to it. Um, and it, it Although, Glenn, one thing the first century readers would have known, <laughs> or I think it's interesting because because tax collectors and sinners, like ta- the, the, the prostitutes, and, like, like they would be consciously unclean, right? They're, they're like consciously unceremonially clean, unceremonially clean for the Pharisees and the scribes. But then you have people like shepherds, and other kind of uh, craftsmen who are unclean because of their occupation, mm-hmm. that maybe they're not uh, as unscrupulous as the tax collector, the extortionist kind of thing, but, but they're still like, they, they're making money in something that would make them continually unclean. And so Jesus asks him, imagine one of you as a shepherd, and then says, imagine you're a woman. And the, you know, think of that prayer, like the, the the prayer that the ancient Jewish prayer that you know, the holy man would pray, like, God, thank you that I'm not a Gentile or a woman. And so here, like, it, it, it seems there's this gentle invitation, like, it, it seems like Jesus is actually being more gentle with the Pharisees and scribes than it looks like on first glance, because he's saying, imagine you're one of them. Wouldn't you do this? You know, and that... Uh, so already he's asking them to sort of, like, it's almost like the, the uh, roles of veil of ignorance, right? Like... John, uh, the Rawls, the great political philosopher, says, you know, that we should make policies behind a veil of ignorance. You don't know if you're gay, straight, rich, poor, you know, a teacher or a venture capitalist. And so you should make the rules not knowing how you're going to be affected by them, right? Behind a veil of ignorance. It's, it's almost like he's, he's putting up a veil, of, a veil of humility. Like, imagine for a minute, you, you are one of these people. Uh, and then the parable is told by someone, because Jesus probably looks unclean to them because he's with these people. Right. Yeah, I think that's a great thing you could play with here is where would you be sitting at the dinner party? Um, and if you want to tie in First Timothy, where would Paul be sitting? 
Yeah. You think he'd be with the scribes and the Pharisees, but yet by his own disclosure, he's the worst of all sinners. Um, so maybe you have to do a Paul before and a Paul after. A Paul who realizes he's a sinner. Um, and maybe that's the difference, is, is, is you've got the people who know they're sinners and those who are in denial about the, them being sinners. And that's the real difference um, between the two different people two different parties at that. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting too. I think that there's this, uh, there's this Lutheran theologian. uh, Oh shoot. He wrote that book on the Heidelberg disputation. Oh gosh. Now his name's escaping me. Oh, uh, great ecumenical Lutheran theologian. Shoot. His book, uh, his book's over on, on the, uh, wow, I'm getting old. I can't can't believe I I can't think of his name, but uh, he said, basically uh, justification is just getting used to your sanctification. Mm. And I think, that there's something to that where like that for Luther, I just talked about this with this guy, Phil Carey on the give and take podcast, like justification is a process or sanctification. Like the, the Christian life is a process. Carey says in Luther, contrary to some Lutheran theologians belief, but the process is sort of beginning again at the beginning, you know, the, all the, all the higher and deeper comes from the again and again. So I think that that is, is there's something to that. Gerhard Forda, by the way, is the theologian I'm thinking of. Okay. I, there I got it. Uh, I had to use the Google machine, Gerhard Forda. But Forda says, you know, justification is just getting used to your sanctification. I think like that sounds simplistic, but there's something to that. And so it's sort of rejoicing again and again that you're the lost sheep. And the degree to which I think you, you, you rejoice in that is also when you rejoice in the redemption of somebody else. Right. When you're sort of because we all love like when celebrity crash stories and stuff like secretly, we love that stuff. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. But like, so it's, it's that inner person in us that loves that. That's the, that's the sort of grumbler that, that needs to hear this text. And, and if you look across the landscape of the world and it looks devastated and the mountains are shaking per Jeremiah's description, then maybe, maybe you haven't embraced your sanctification. Yeah. And I just, yeah. And I think, you know, Roger Van Harn is, writes about this text in the Erdman's lectionary, uh, commentary and he says that what he asked what would the church be like if it were shaped by jesus table fellowship with sinners he said, first it'd be a, a place a safe place for people to come near to listen and he asked you know what what factors the contemporary church stop people from listening you have both you know the the, the scandals the scandalized sinners but also these religious people who are judging jesus and yet curious right they, they can all listen mm-hmm. second he said the church would be a place where people are nurtured for a seek and save mission in the world that, that it would be a, a sort of, I guess, like a, it's not walled off from the world, but it's a place where it's a, where sinners are, 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 are sent out uh, to tell the radical story of grace to other sinners. And third, he said it would be a party house where celebrations happen, where, uh, you know, where, where redemption is celebrated lavishly. And yeah, I think that, that that's a beautiful picture of what I think Jesus is, is, is inaugurating here. Amen. Glenn, thanks for doing this with me, my friend. It's always a pleasure, Scott. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Glenn for coming on the podcast. You can find his stuff at MeaningfulWorship.Blogspot.Com. And thanks to you again for listening. Till next time, friends, fare thee well.